Okay, well, let me go ahead and get going. We're already a little bit behind and I've got a lot to cover, so I'm gonna be talking pretty quickly. Uh, this is the theological paradigms uh, section of the introduction to theology that Pastor Mark set up. And we talked about the meaning of a theological paradigm in the past. It's a set of ideas or beliefs that comprise one's theological perspectives, faith, and system. It includes the beliefs that make up a theological viewpoint, a theological viewpoint and distinct, and, uh, that distinguishes one theological viewpoint from another. Today we're doing the last lesson, lesson 13, we'll be covering Roman Catholicism and Pentecostal theology, Lord willing. Now, introductory remarks with regarding, uh, regarding Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic theology. <clears throat> Roman Catholicism is, uh, in, in terms of the worldwide Christendom, <clears throat> I'm using that word, term uh, Christendom pretty uh, broadly, that includes a lot, even non-Orthodox uh, um, denominations. But Roman Catholicism was one of the three main branches in Christendom, along with Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism. <clears throat> Roman Catholicism can give the appearance of being Christian, and they would like to call themselves Christian. However, um, we will see that it's in appearance only. Roman Catholicism has sophisticated theological arguments that can seem on the surface to be biblical, but when you dig down in underneath them, they are not. And um, Roman Catholicism changes the meaning of theological terminology. So as an example, <clears throat> the word evangelical is now being used to refer to Catholics. And so they can call themselves evangelical Catholics, even though what we would mean by evangelical and what they would mean by evangelical are not the same thing. They take that term and sever it basically from its historical and, and doctrinal roots. So for example, um, the word conversion uh, we would refer to conversion as being a one-time experience. You had, had a time where you were not converted, and you have a time when you became converted. Well, <clears throat> Roman Catholicism views conversion as a lifelong process that requires the Roman Catholic sacramental system rather than being a once-for-all experience. So uh, just be aware of the fact that there's a lot of terminology and word uh, changes in Roman Catholicism. So these are just some uh, things to be aware of and some preliminary remarks. Let's start. Okay. Just, just leave it like that. Is that good? Okay. <clears throat> Hopefully that one will record. <laughs> we'll see. So let's look then at two foundational axioms or beliefs in Roman Catholic theology. Now this You may or may not be familiar with this, but I think you'll see what we're talking about as we go through this. The first is what is called the nature-grace interdependence, and I'm borrowing a lot from a fellow named Greg Allison and his, uh, his work. His, he has a, a good book on Roman Catholicism and some articles on it. But um, there's what is called the nature-grace interdependence. Now, by nature, <clears throat> we, he means, and we would mean, creation. Anything in creation, galaxies, planets, angels, humans, all the way down to, uh, as we will see, water, oil, wine, and bread. So basically just creation. And by grace, we mean God's unmerited favor toward creation. Now, we're talking about the nature-grace interdependence, and so what do we mean by interdependence? 
Interdependence is uh, the idea that nature is capable of receiving and transmitting grace. So through the creation, grace comes. And grace must be concretely transmitted by nature. Moreover, grace may be transmitted by nature regardless of the recipient's conscious receptivity. So grace can be transmitted to you through some aspect of creation regardless of how receptive you are to it. This is explained by a Roman Catholic theologian named George Weigel. He says, it is through the ordinary materials of life, the materials of the seven sacraments, such as bread, wine, oil, and water, that the extraordinary grace of God enters history and nourishes the friends of Jesus and empowers them in their missionary discipleship. And so, according to Roman Catholicism, God will use nature, some aspect of nature, like oil, bread, wine, to infuse or to, to give you grace, regardless of whether you want it or not, if it's administered uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. One example of that would be water baptism, and we'll see that later. The waters of baptism will, will um, give you, transmit to you grace um, regardless. So that's the first foundational axiom. The second is the Christ-Church interconnection. <clears throat> Christ-Church interconnection. Now, uh, this goes underneath the, the um, idea of the whole Christ theology, whole Christ theology. <clears throat> By this is meant that Christ and his church, and this is a quote from the Catholic Catechism, Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ, Christus totus. The church is one with Christ. Or another section of the Catechism, we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. So Rome considers itself the prolongation, that is, it, it prolongs uh, the prolongation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The church is that. The church mirrors Christ as a divine human reality, acting as an ultra persona Christi. And Amy, forgive me if I don't get the Latin right. Um, a second Christ, that is, in other words, the other person of Christ, the church becomes the other person of Christ, the second Christ, an extension of Christ, an extension of his incarnation. So a Roman Catholic uh, uh, writer wrote a book. His name is David McConey. He wrote a book recently entitled Christ Unfurled the First 500 Years of Jesus' Life. 500 years? Because he regards the first five centuries of the Christian church as if they were, quote, the first 500 years of Jesus' life on earth. The church is, is the unbroken continuation of Christ's own incarnate self, the extension of his divine and human presence on earth. The whole Christ is not just Jesus now seated at the right hand of the Father, but the entire Christ is Jesus as well as those whom he loves. That's what McConey says in his book. So let's look at this whole Christ uh, interconnection and apply that, see how the Roman Catholic Church applies that. So to get the whole Christ, you need Jesus plus the church. Now we know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. I have him in the other order here. So as king, Jesus is authority. He, he is authoritative. As priest, he's our mediator. 
as prophet, he declares God's truth. Well, this is transmitted then to the church because the church is part of Christ as an extension of his incarnation. And so these, uh, these aspects of Christ become part of the church. So the church mirrors Jesus in the same way, mirrors his kingship. So the church becomes the authority of Christ on earth, found in the church's hierarchical rule of the pope, bishops, and the priests. The church becomes the, the mediator uh, in the priesthood. Jesus' mediatorial role is in the pope, the bishops, and priests, and their administration of the sacraments. So they mediate grace, and uh, they are the extension of Christ on earth, his incarnation. And then there's the prophetic office. <clears throat> uh, God's truth is given to the Roman Catholic Church to declare, given to them to declare. They have what is called the magisterium. The magisterium is composed of the, the Pope and the bishops, and the magisterium is the body that has been given the authority by Christ to interpret uh, the, the scriptures and interpret tradition. And that is why, by the way, the Pope can speak ex cathedra, that is, without error, uh, infallibly at times, not often, but at times, because uh, the, the Pope is part of the church, and the church is the extension of Jesus, is the incarnation of Jesus on the earth. And so there is, in Roman Catholic theology, no solus Christus. There's only Christus in ecclesia, Christ in the church, and ecclesia in Christus. So the whole Christ in Roman Catholic theology then is Jesus plus the church, and this is applied throughout their theology. So those are the two axioms, the nature church interdependence and the church, or the nature grace interdependence and the church, the Christ church interconnection. Now, what are some of the problems with these two axioms? Real quickly. Um, there's nothing, uh, there's no uniting of nature to grace in Scripture. The Bible never connects grace to nature in such a way that regardless of the recipient, regardless of their heart attitude, um, grace is transmitted to you just by means of the fact that you get some aspect of creation like bread, wine, or oil um, given to you or applied to you. You just don't find that in the Scripture. Uh, Christ uh, as creator the creator-creature distinction, I think, is blurred in this whole Christ idea. Christ is the one who created the people who make up the church. They're not an extension of him. And think about that. The church is always changing, is it not? As people are born, as they join the church, and that would mean Christ, the whole Christ is always changing. And then I think it uh, affects Christ's incarnation. The incarnation is that the Divine Son of God took to himself a fully human nature so that there is in the one person, two natures, human and divine. One person, two natures, fully human, fully divine. The incarnation is corrupted by this idea of the whole Christ because the church then becomes part of the incarnation and uh, that corrupts, I think, the whole idea of Christ's incarnation. And then fourthly, <clears throat> Christ's exaltation. Currently, his incarnated person is fully and only in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Now, I'm not denying the fact that as God, he is omnipresent. We're talking about the person of Christ and his, 
his physical body. He is not physically on the earth in the church. He's not extended his incarnation to the church. He is physically with the Lord at the right hand of the Father. So those are some of the problems I see with uh, that theology, and there are plenty others. What are some of the common doctrines that we hold in common? Well, in the back of the church, I left a list of some of the doctrines that we hold in common, because there are doctrines that we hold in common. The Protestants and Heritage Baptist Church would agree with Roman Catholics on a number of uh, those doctrines, although I believe that if you dig down really deeply in some of them, you'll find usually some way in which uh, we, um, we differ. But I'm going to refer to the handout for that for you. In other words, they would agree, for example, with the Trinity, that there's one God in three persons, that sort of thing. But what about the, the doctrinal differences? The doctrinal differences with, with regard to Roman Catholicism are not those secondary or tertiary doctrines. Those are doctrines of primary significance, primary importance. And so they are among the cardinal doctrines of the faith uh, where we would differ with them. So let's look at some of those differences. Let's look at where we in contrast with Roman Catholicism. Well, with regard to divine revelation, Roman Catholics would hold that authoritative revelation consists of both scripture and tradition. Protestants hold to sola scriptura. We don't add tradition as an authoritative source for divine revelation. Roman Catholics add seven books called the Apocrypha to the Old Testament, so they have a total of 73 books, although they would, they would agree that the other 66 are inspired, as we would say. With regard to tradition, by tradition is meant the oral teaching that is passed down from Jesus to his apostles and then to the Catholic bishops. So the Roman Catholic Church claims that Christ made the church the only keeper of this authoritative tradition. It's not just, you know, tradition. We recognize there is, was an oral tradition. <clears throat> but they regard this tradition that has been given to the Roman Catholic Church as authoritative. And along with that, <clears throat> they regard the Roman Catholic Church as being the ones allowed to make authoritative interpretation. And so what they call the magisterium, that is the popes and the bush bishops, of the Roman Catholic Church gives the church the authoritative interpretation of both scripture and tradition <clears throat> and are allowed to add to, <clears throat> to that. <clears throat> so authoritative uh, interpretation comes not from you or me getting into the scriptures and the Holy Spirit teaching us, but it comes from the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. Now with regard to the doctrine of Mary, there's a lot of uh, ideas that are floating about in Roman Catholic uh, theology with regard to Mary. What, are, what does the church say about Mary? We'll find that we have a lot of differences here, and Mary is a very significant part of Roman Catholic theology. The Roman Catholic Church holds to Mary's sinlessness. She was preserved from original sin and lived a sinless life, according to them, not conceived in sin, as uh, she was preserved from sin, the original sin in her conception. They believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin her whole life, and that she never had kids, uh, never consummated her marriage with Joseph. They believe in the atoning, co-suffering with Christ, that she is what it was called a co-redemptrix. And so um, this 
Senor uh, uh, Monsignor uh, Mangan, Mangan, well, not if I'm saying his right name correctly, but he says that this title of co-redemptrix denotes Mary's singular and unique sharing with her son in the saving work of redemption for the human family. And so she suffered with him and joined in his saving work. They believe in the co-mediation with Christ. She is called the mediatrix of all graces. Her mediation is, quote, is carried out under Christ and in union with Christ from whom it receives all its efficacy. And that's how they sort of justify this as, oh, well, she's in union with her son and gets the, the power from him. Nevertheless, she is also, co she's joined with him in union with him so that she can be a mediator for us. And as she is called the mediatrix of all graces, all graces can come to her in a way unlike any other human person. And then there is the motherhood of all Christians. Uh, Mary is considered to be the mother, mother of all Christians. She, uh, as was stated in some of their uh, writings, manifests the three principal aspects in which our spiritual mother exercises her, mater her maternal love for the church. As the mother of suffering, she is co-redemptrix. As the mother of nourishing, she is mediatrix of all graces. And as the mother of pleading, she is our advocate. So she becomes a mother of all Christians in Roman Catholic theology. They also believe in the bodily ascension to heaven, the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. Now, this was added in 1950 by the Magisterium under Pope Pius XII, and it holds that Mary's body did not see corruption, uh, whether she never died or she was raised from the dead. In, in either case, it's not specified in either case, Mary's body ascended, just like Jesus' body ascended. She ascended both body and soul to the right hand of King Jesus so that she could be the queen of heaven. And then they also hold to what is called super veneration. Uh, now, they would tell you that, oh yeah, we don't worship Mary, so you Protestants you know, accuse us wrongly when you say that we worship Mary. And in a certain sense, that is true because they don't say that she is due the worship that is due to, uh, to God alone. But they also say that she gets a veneration that is uh, higher than the veneration that would go to any other faithful saint. So she is higher than, you know, other you or me. Maybe not Pastor Mark, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> she, she, is, she gets veneration higher than any other saint, and that's called hyperdulia. And that means that we can pray to her, ask her for her intercession and her aid. With regard to doctrines that we differ with them on, uh, the church and the pope, we of course have some differences there. The Roman Catholic Church is the one true church, they would say. Protestant assemblies are just ecclesial communities. They're not real churches. So we're not, huh, we don't have a real church here, according to them. And any salvation that comes through these ecclesial communities flows from the fullness of the salvation in the Catholic Church. It's like the overflow from the Catholic Church kind of spills out into the, the community and maybe because uh, of our ignorance and not understanding all these truths, we, we get a little bit of that overflow. So anything that comes to us that, that helps merit our salvation is, uh, is because of the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is the vicar of Christ. 
According to the, the Catholic uh, um, Truth website, the Pope is the heart of, of the church, is the successor of Peter, is, quote, the vicar of Christ, and has been appointed by Christ to run the church on earth while the king, while King Jesus is away. So uh, this is their doctrine of the church and the Pope. Now, another key area that we hold uh, differences with is the area of the sacraments. There's, many of you probably know that there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, and at the heart of, uh, and these are at the heart of Roman Catholic religion, and they involve transmitting grace via nature, that is, via the sacramental elements in the sacraments. So we've already mentioned baptism, but in baptism, they consecrate the water, and when that water is consecrated, then baptism confers grace by washing away original sin, along with all sins committed before baptism, if you happen to be an adult or someone older. It results in the, rege the regeneration of a person, making him or her a child of God. It results in incorporating the person into the church and of granting justification in its initial stage. Now remember, for them, justification is not a one-time act. It's an ongoing process. And so you, baptism gets you in, into this process of justification, starts the process of justification, and baptism is necessary for salvation. But that comes by means of this consecrated water, regardless of whether the infant knows it, thinks it, wants it, or not, is conscious of it at all, by means of creation, grace is being transmitted to that infant and his sins are being, or her sins are being forgiven. Original sin. With regard to confirmation, through the consecrated oil and the laying on of the bishop's hands, confirmation bestows grace, conferring the Holy Spirit to individuals, and the Holy Spirit then increases that individual's faith and love for other people in God. The Eucharist, which we would call communion, through the consecrated bread and wine, the Eucharist confers grace when the person eats the bread. Now, they don't drink the wine, typically, but um, they eat the bread or the wafer. The bread and the wine are, are transformed into the real body and blood of Jesus, which is what they would call transubstantiation, not consubstantiation that the, uh, the Lutherans would hold to. By, by, transubstanti by transubstantiation, they mean that the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ are present in the wafer, that is the bread and the wine, when being received into the body of the individual, and by that, receiving the wafer, the person becomes the living tabernacle of Christ. So by means of this part of creation, it is transformed, not in its appearance, but in it, according to them, in its reality, it's transformed into the blood of Jesus Christ or the body of Jesus Christ. And um, when you take that into your body, uh, grace is being transmitted to you, and, um, and you become the tabernacle of God or Christ. Question. No, no, um, it wasn't. Baptism is part of that. And so you're baptized, you're cleansed of all original sin, and then there's ongoing cleansing between the first Holy Communion and your confirmation. And so technically, 
are cleansed and can receive that stuff, but not fully until you are in the world. Well, there is no good argument. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't really uh, come across that particular question in my study, so I think Joe probably had the answer there for us, at least part of the answer. So thank you. Very, very small intellectual <laughs> Okay, so we, of course, would uh, differ with them with regard to the Eucharist. We don't believe that the, uh, the bread and the wine uh, are actually um, become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but that it is a symbol. Then, um, with regard to the fourth sacrament, penance or confession, the confession of sins to a priest is an essential element of this particular sacrament. And indeed, the, the bishops and priests have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And confession will reduce your time in, in purgatory. So grace, again, is transmitted uh, through, this is, you can see the Christ Church connection here. With the, with the priest acting as Christ on the earth. Then there's the anointing of sick of the sick through consecrated oil and the laying on of the bishop's hand. Grace to heal or to prepare a person of death is bestowed. The forgiveness of all sins is granted uh, by this means, and the Holy Spirit is given to strengthen and give peace and courage to the person for their sickness or their death. And then holy orders. Holy orders is just for the priests. Holy orders bestows grace through the laying on of the bishop's hands to ordain men to the priesthood. So this is how somebody becomes a priest. The person is conformed to Christ as priest forever, allowing him to administer all the sacraments to others, and it confers an indelible, that means that you can't erase it, you can't wash it away, an indelible spiritual character on this person becomes permanent and it cannot be repeated. That happens through the laying on of hands of the the bishops and the other priests. And then there's matrimony. Uh, this is a sacrament which confers uh, grace upon a man and a woman, uni uniting them in marriage and perfecting their love. The marriage of two baptized persons can never be dissolved, and they have some sticky marital situations to deal with because of that. Now, with regard to moving on from the sacraments to salvation, the Roman Catholic Church, as you I'm sure already know, by acting in the person of Christ or as the person of Christ and administering the seven sacraments, it administers and transmits God's grace for salvation to, uh, to the individuals receiving it. Grace is infused into the recipient and it's, according to them, transforming his or her character, enabling him to work to merit eternal life. So this grace comes to you, gives you the, the power to work for, and, and earn eternal life along with the graces that have already come to you through Christ, as they would say. The sacraments are valid ex opere operato, meaning they're valid simply by being administered, regardless of the heart attitude of the one administering it or the recipient. So if you're baptized as an adult and in your heart is rebellion, doesn't matter, you're going to get grace anyway. They have a built-in efficacy. However, they would say, yeah, it's better to have a good heart than to have a bad heart when you're being baptized. But even if you don't have a good heart, if you're baptized, 
you're going to get grace, some measure of grace, because grace is transmitted via nature. At death, <clears throat> nearly all will first suffer punishment and purification in purgatory uh, to be perfected so that they can enter heaven. So <clears throat> you've got to go through this uh, pur uh, purging aspect later on in purgatory to fully be perfected so you can enter heaven. So these that's a doctrine of salvation in Roman Catholicism. So you can see through the seven sacraments how this idea of nature, uh, the nature-grace connection and the Christ-church connection, it all ties you in and locks you in to the Roman Catholic Church and what they are doing and what they are doing, they have the authority to do because they are, in essence, part of the whole Christ. They are Christ's incarnation on the earth. <clears throat> now, we don't have time to <laughs> do a rebuttal of all that. Um, wish we did, but we're going to have to to move on. Yes. I think that's pretty well universal. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you can actually totally pray them out, but you can sure make their time there shorter, according to them. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the second uh, area of theology that we're going to talk about today very quickly, and that is Pentecostal theology. And I know this is like, you know, you're being fed from a fire hose, but, um, you know, there's that passage, I think it's Psalm 80 or 81, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so here we go. Um, understanding Pentecostal theology. What is a good definition or a definition of, of um, Pentecostalism? Again, I'm borrowing here. Uh, with some modifications from Greg Allison's work. But Pentecostalism is a Holy Spirit-emphasized movement characterized by certain unique doctrines and practices, including the baptism of the Spirit, which is for Christians after conversion, speaking in tongues as evidence of that Spirit baptism, and the exercise of all the spiritual gifts, including what we would call the sign gifts, and the supernatural gifts. So those three elements there, baptism of the Spirit, after conversion, um, speaking in tongues as evidence of that, and then the exercising of all the spiritual gifts are what are involved in Pentecostalism. So what are the things that we have in common with uh, Pentecostal uh, theology? Well, most Pentecostals are evangelical. And there may be a few here who have some Pentecostalism in your background. And I would be quick to say that unlike uh, the theology of Roman Catholicism, um, I believe that there are many Pentecostal believers, many who know the Lord. And uh, maybe some of you were a believer before you came here as a Pentecostal. But um, I, in talking about Pentecostalism, it is not, not my intention to kind of put down other believers, but rather just to understand where they're coming from and understand what uh, the scriptures teach in these areas so that we are not um, sucked into some false theology. 
But um, most Pentecostals then are evangelical, and there are some good godly uh, believers among them. They would hold to the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith for the most part, not, a, not across the board, but for the most part. And uh, Pentecostalism in its origination uh, took place in what we could call three movements or three waves. How it started, uh, the first wave, the beginnings of Pentecostalism, uh, was in a meeting, what is, what is called the Azusa Street Revival, which took place in 1906 in Los Angeles, uh, spelled Joseph wrong there, with um, the fellow William Joseph Seymour. He was a preacher and he had embraced some uh, the theological training of a fellow named Charles Parham. And uh, he was teaching the baptism of the spirit and tongues as a sign of that and the, the uh, continuation of all the gifts. And from that small beginning, where there was a, a, a revival, as a lot of people started going there, there he would preach to like 300 to 1500 people from that very small beginning in 1906, up through today, now there are uh, about 600 million adherents to, loosely speaking, to what is called Pentecostalism. It's more of a global movement and phenomenon now. The second wave, that's kind of the first wave how it got started, the second wave took place in the 60s and 70s when the charismatic movement began and, and started uh, taking hold. Um, <clears throat> what was happening here is certain Pentecostal theological distinctives expanded into mainline denominations. So like the baptism of the spirit and speaking in tongues was being expanded into Roman Catholicism, into Anglicanism, Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, and, and others. So it kind of went out and uh, people got involved in this um, second blessing, as it is called, in the various denominations. Speaking in tongues and exercising all the spiritual gifts then characterized this movement. And uh, then came the third wave, which uh, is some subsequent to that, where segments of evangelicalism embraced some of the classic Pentecostal teachings, maybe not as many as were embraced before. Uh, there's, there's kind of different, uh, the, the, their theology began taking a little bit different shape, but they still embraced some of the fundamental uh, teachings of classic Pentecostalism and, uh, and yet maintain some differences. And you, you may have heard of people, you know, like Calvinistic, Charismatics, that sort of thing. So this could be called Neo-Pentecostalism but it includes three distinctives in theology, experience, and missions. And let's take a look at those three areas. In theology, there is a separation of regeneration from the baptism of the Spirit. In the uh, General Assemblies, uh, the Council of General Assemblies, or the, the Assemblies of God, say in their Constitution and Bylaws, quote, this experience is distinct from and subsequent, subsequent to the experience of the new birth. So you're born again, you become a Christian, and then sometime later, could be years later, you get this experience of baptism of the Spirit. In fact, you may never get it. Tongues, as has already been mentioned, uh, becomes a proof of this baptism of the Spirit. So classic Pentecostal theology asserts the baptism of the Spirit, or the second blessing, is necessarily accompanied by speaking in tongues. So 
that's how you're going to know that you have this uh, baptism of the Spirit is that you will speak in tongues. And then there is continuationism, what could be called continuationism. That is the sign of the Spirit, the supernatural gifts continue today, including the revelatory gifts. So with, according to them, with it, with it that is the, this is from the Constitution of the General, the General Council of the Assemblies of God. They say, quote, with it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowal, the bestowment of all the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. And so it does a lot for you to be baptized in the spirit. So that's their theology and the same. We'll see this in their experience. So what happens then is in, in experience is you have this two tiered Christianity. You have the haves and the have nots. So you all here have spoken and, and gotten the baptism of the Spirit, so you're the haves, and you guys over here haven't. You're the have-nots. You guys over here have had a deeper and more intensified walk and love for God because of that than you guys over here. And so um, we have this two-tiered Christianity that is developed in uh, this uh, Pentecostal theology. The deeper Christian has been given this gift of tongues as well. So you guys have spoken in tongues. You guys haven't. So they've got something that you don't have. <clears throat> and some of the Christians uh, have extraordinary gifts like healing, miracle working, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of knowledge, etc. These that are could be classified as extraordinary gifts. They're not just signs of the apostles for the foundation of the church to them. There's something that is ongoing for us today. And I want you to make a note of the fact that some of these gifts involve divine revelation. Prophecy, tongues. It involves an individual getting divine revelation from God and then speaking that forth to, uh, to other Christians. So some Christians can speak divine revelation in scripture. In fact, I remember reading a THM thesis in seminary entitled something like um, non-canonical special revelation that comes through the gifts. <clears throat> I believe there's no such thing as non-canonical special revelation, but that's what they posit. <clears throat> okay, in missions then, those with such views feel they've been baptized by the spirit and they feel that they, they've been empowered uh, for evangelism and church planting. And so there have been a lot of churches planted across the, the globe. They often engage in what are called deliverance ministries. These ministries flow from their theology that sickness, suffering, and oppression are manifestations of sin and of demonic activity. And so they believe that their mission is to go out and preach the good news. Yeah, they, they do want to preach the gospel. We want to preach the good news as much as they understand it. It's usually more from a Armenian perspective, but um, they, they preach the good news, they heal the sick, and they exercise demons, not exercise, exorcise, cast out demons, and they have these deliverance ministries, and I'm sure you've seen some of those on TV if you haven't attended some. I've attended some, uh, but they have these deliverance ministries as well. Well, I have some concerns with this uh, theology while I, uh, on the one hand, appreciate the fact that there are many brothers and sisters involved in it. Uh, I do have some concerns and I believe there's some errors mixed in. So let me quickly give you 10. First of all, 
I believe that this, uh, this theology undermines the doctrine of sola scriptura. The scripture alone is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice because if somebody can get a divine revelation from God, then he can speak that divine revelation to you and you have the word of God coming to you and that's outside of scripture. Now I know that I know we don't have time to go in how they justify that and what the what my arguments would be against that. But the bottom line is there's divine revelation coming to you outside of scripture. Secondly, <clears throat> it elevates or exalts certain believers over others. And I believe that that tends to make people, certain people, um, proud and, and exalts them. Thirdly, it ignores or overlooks the ordinary means of grace. Uh, how am I going to be sanctified? Well, I get this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's this, this dramatic experience that happens to me, and that gives me a deeper, intense love. And you got to read all the descriptions of what it'll do for you. <clears throat> um, it gives you this, this great uh, zeal and, and love and power to do all sorts of things, and it, and it does not emphasize then the, uh, the normal means of grace, getting your, spending your time in the Word, spending time in prayer, getting together with other believers and fellowshipping, sitting under the preaching of the Word, partaking of, uh, of the Lord's Supper. It, it, it shifts the focus away from those things, which is what's going to really help you to grow long-term and gives you what I think of these short-term kind of, uh, of emotional experiences that seem on the surface to, to um, cause you to grow in grace, which I think really don't. Fourth, <clears throat> it fails to rightly understand the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit in Scripture is, is a doctrine of Scripture, but the baptism of the, scripture, of the Spirit in Scripture is the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It was a one-time, non-repeatable event. Not, you don't have your own personal Pentecost, not in Scripture. Pentecost is a one-time giving of the Holy Spirit. And there's a second aspect of the baptism of the Spirit, and that is that it is concurrent with and inseparable from regeneration. If you are, if you are baptized with the Spirit as an individual, then you become part of the body of Christ. And only regenerate people are part of the body of Christ. And if you're not part of the body of Christ, then you are not regenerate. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are regenerate and you have been baptized into that body by means of the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> it, it misunderstands what tongues is in many cases. Um, I think most of the time, uh, tongues is viewed as something that would include ecstatic speech. Biblically, tongues is not ecstatic speech. Tongues is a foreign language. And so if you're not speaking a foreign language, you're not speaking in tongues biblically. Sixth, it misunderstands the purpose of tongues in many cases. Tongues is not a private gift. It is not a private prayer language. It is not given for your own personal edification off in the closet somewhere. Tongues is given just like all the other spiritual gifts for the common good. It's for the building up of the body of Christ and it had a particular, a particular place in the history of redemption in the early church. But it's not for your private use, in spite of the text that they use to prove that with. Um, <clears throat> tongue, or, or this uh, Pentecostal theology also creates unbiblical, and I'm going to say unbiblical and disillusioning, demoralizing, doubt-generating, despairing expectations. It causes people to have expectations 
that are just not realistic. They're not biblical. And people become disillusioned by that. They think they're gonna, more is gonna happen, more is gonna, they're, they're gonna be healed and they're not healed. They think that they had enough faith and they had all the faith they could possibly muster, but they don't get healed. And so they're disillusioned, they're demoralized. They, they begin to have doubts, does God love me? Is God even there? And they, and they end up in despair, many of them. And any, many of them turn away from God altogether. It lends itself to many excesses and it emphasizes the sensational, the unusual. I mean, there's some not, of course, the good responsible Pentecostals would agree with me on what I'm going to say, you know, and some of these things. They would agree with me. Okay, when you talk about your puppy got raised from the dead, your washing machine got healed, you know, I, this lady gets a new belly button, you know, all sorts of things. Um, they would say, yeah, these are, these are, uh, these are excesses. But it, it does lend itself to that sort of thing. And you have, we have to, well, that's all I would say. Um, it crosses the boundary line into non-neo-Orthodox Christianity. How is it that speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Spirit can be given to, to individuals who are in all these different theologies, you know, in, to Roman Catholics, to Anglicans, to Episcopalians, to, and these are people who are in like liberal churches as well. You know, people whose orthodoxy, as far as their doctrinal beliefs, we would not hold to, and yet, they somehow get the baptism of the Spirit and can speak in tongues. And then lastly, it uh, drives discerning unbelievers away from true Christianity. You know, unbelievers are not stupid. They, they can look out and they see these excesses. They see this, these ridiculous claims. I carried on a correspondence with one of these guys who was a TV preacher. And uh, after my mother, after my grandmother was dead, he was still writing me letters saying, I received this vision and your grandmother can be healed. Just send me your money and your, you know, get a prayer cloth and da, 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 da. you know, all this sort of thing. And she's hurt, she's dead. So um, unbelievers are not stupid. They see what's going on. They understand the, 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 um, the trickery that's, that happens in some of their meetings. You know, people putting earbuds and talking to somebody and transmitting that up to the guy on stage. They, they see all that stuff. They know what's going on. <clears throat> and, and they associate that with Jesus and with Christianity. And they say, that's Christianity. I don't want anything to do with it. It drives discerning unbelievers away from true Christianity. These are some of the concerns and errors I believe exist and that I have with regard to Pentecostal theology. There's a lot more that we could say. Thank you for opening your mouth wide. Uh, <clears throat> let's uh, pray and be dismissed. Father, bless us now as we go to worship you. Help Pastor Mark to deliver your word and with power and unction. May we worship you truly, O oh Lord, in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.